0: The personal relationship factor came into play early on in, in building the company. I still don't feel like we have a great, well-recognized brand. I hear from the sales team that, you know, one in five, one in four people that they're talking to will say, Oh yeah, I know you guys. Uh, so that's why the CMO is here to help us solve that problem. Yeah. But we got the we did the harder part first, which was get get the sales and, and get
1: customers in the door. you show up for engaging conversations we handle everything else ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week reach out to us at contentallies.com. do you employ or pay workers in other countries even if you don't yet you might soon now that remote work is the norm employees have more freedom than ever to move around if you want to keep the best people you have to stay flexible that's why remote makes it easy for companies of all sizes to employ global teams They take care of international payroll, benefits, taxes, and local compliance, so you can focus less on paperwork and more on growing your business. Remote helps you onboard full-time employees or contractors in countries all over the world in minutes on its simple, easy-to-use platform. And even better, Remote helps you rest easy by providing you the most comprehensive intellectual property protection and data security in the industry. They own full local legal entities in all their covered regions, guaranteeing you never have to deal with a third party ever. To save you money, Remote never charges any fees or salary percentages. You get access to everything Remote offers from payroll to compliance and to benefits management for one low flat rate. No hidden fees, no surprises ever. Just the best global employment solution in the business. Best of all, podcast listeners get an even bigger discount. Get your first employee free for 12 months and two months free for any additional employees onboarded during their first year. You can get 50% off Remote's full suite of global employment solutions for your first employee for three months. Just visit remote.com slash leaders and use the promo code leaders.
2: Welcome back to Leaders of B2B. Today, I'm joined by the CEO of a company called Leonardo 24-7. They help property owners and managers increase operational efficiencies while mitigating risk. He's also the host of the Apartment Academy podcast. I'm so excited to be joined today by Daniel Cunningham. Daniel, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks. Great to be here.
2: It's such a pleasure to have you. You know, my whole family's in real estate. I'm fascinated by the industry. We're going to talk about prop tech. We're going to talk about your entrepreneurial journey. We'll, we will might even get into some podcasting. But, you know, to sort of introduce listeners to, you know, Leonardo 24-7, I briefly hinted at it in the beginning, but tell us about that company.
0: Yeah, so Leonardo 24-7 sort of bridges the gap between if you're an apartment, a multifamily operator or owner operator, you have policies and procedures and inspections and workflows and a whole host of things that you expect to be happening at that property on a day-to-day basis that are often very difficult to track and and to manage, especially if you have larger portfolios, getting everybody doing the same thing in the same way at the right time. It's been a real challenge in, in, the, in the industry. And what Leonardo 24-7 does is it it changes the, the dynamic from expecting the the folks on site to know it all, to be experts in all these different verticals and preventative maintenance and risk mitigation and leasing. And, you know, sometimes they're part time lawyers, sometimes they're part time psychologists. I mean, it's a lot that weigh on the folks that operate these buildings and to expect them to, to be experts in everything and to remember it all is not realistic. So Leonardo shifts that burden Rather than expect them to know it all, Leonardo becomes the expert in in operating that asset. And then sort of like your right-hand man gives you daily guidance based on a, a property's unique amenity and equipment profile, uh, geographically, where is it located? You know, is it subject to cold, freezing temperatures or hurricanes? There's a whole number of factors that then automatically generate a year's worth of daily guidance for the property based also on their own policies and procedures to the extent they have any. Uh, that gets built in so that what, what's a priority, what needs to be done and the way it needs to be done. There's no question about it. Just pushed out on a daily basis to um, a mobile device or a desktop. And now you just ask people on site to execute and you've given them like everything they need to be successful, the form they need to use, like a video they need to watch if they don't know how to do something like you just really making them much more efficient. and And that lowers all kinds of operational risk which is sort of really what underpins I think our our basic value proposition.
2: Yeah, that's fascinating Daniel. How did you get into this space? You know, had you had you been in the real estate industry before? Take us to the moment when you, you know, kind of the idea for this this company was, you know, if was formulated.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a classic, you know, uh founder-led company where the founder has specific domain expertise. And solved a problem for themselves, and that's what happened in this case. So I was, I was former director of asset management at Aimco when they were the largest multifamily REIT in the country, and, uh, and 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 the largest operator at the same time. And you know we were constantly struggling with going out, auditing the properties, what was actually happening on site, and finding that you know aside from the things that really felt urgent to them. You know, keeping things leased, keeping apartments leased, you know, raising rents, a a lot of everything else was really ad hoc, despite giant binders full of, of policies and procedures that Inc was constantly updating. It was, it was not, they were not being followed in the field, but it wasn't until, uh, I, I started a management company for a company here in Los Angeles where I really got to sort of stand side by side with the folks that are in the field every day in the trenches, And, and got to witness for myself that the, that the problem was there's just too much to remember. There's not everyone is an expert in everything. actually there was a, there was a, I don't know that every, I don't know that every founder has a Genesis moment for their company, but I have one. Uh, We had a property in downtown Los Angeles was a 13 story high rise and we lost water, uh, hot water to the entire building, 322 units. And what had happened was that the boiler on the roof had actually melted. There was there's ceramics on the inside of those boilers, and if they're not maintained properly, the fire there's a crack, right? The fire can go through and actually melt the boiler, and that happened. And we had to I had to expedite a um, a boiler to, manu- to get manufactured, helicoptered to the roof. It was super expensive. Uh, we had to give, you know loss of habitational credits to everybody that lived there. It's a very expensive affair, and and the owner of the company called me into his office for a very uncomfortable meeting and was like, you know, Daniel, how did you, how did you let this happen? And first of all, I was like, well, this is a vendor's responsibility, right? Our property managers don't know anything about managing the boilers. I don't know anything about managing the boilers. And so, you know, it it was just an oversight and we couldn't have known this was going on. He said, I want you to make sure that this never happens again. I said, well, okay. Well, we can tell everybody, but it's a business with a big turnover rate. I mean, in multifamily, you have over 50% turnover rate in many companies. So we can tell everybody, but that institutional knowledge evaporates within 18 months. And uh, the next guy that comes in, who knows what they'll know. So that started a process. First of all, what I thought was going to be my next big affair, which was I wrote a book that was intended to codify all of these processes that we like, hey, these are the things, these are the things we have to do every day, every week, every month. So I wrote a book called 365 Days of Property Management, which I quickly realized was probably not gonna rise very quickly on the New York Times bestsellers list. I mean, not it's not the most riveting reading, but it really served great as the basis of a soft piece of software so so that was the genesis of of leonardo was trying to solve my own problem my own exposure in operating uh, real estate assets and uh, we launched the beta product in 2014 and immediately uh, received amazing feedback from large operators which we didn't expect we thought look we're gonna be helping out other smaller operators mom and pops that have you know less than 25 properties and they don't have a budget for a senior vp of maintenance and certainly don't have a risk manager wandering around Uh, maybe they don't even have a preventive maintenance program they're just relying on the guys on site to know what to do but what we found was while that is all true even the largest operators in the business still struggled with these large portfolios to make sure everybody was doing everything right at the same time in the same way, et cetera. So so that was very encouraging. We got some immediate feedback on that and started tweaking the product. We were still bootstrapped at that point. We didn't raise any money. Some question about the uh, wisdom in that, but it seemed to work out okay. And then, uh, and then we launched. had a Had a, a single investor come in, invest some money in the company in 2016, and we launched more or less the product that that you see today. And it was a struggle because there wasn't really a similar product in the market. We couldn't say, well, we're like we're like those guys, but we do all this stuff better. Like that would have been easier. Instead, we had to spend a lot of time educating people because they were like, I I didn't, I don't, this tells me how to run my property. We're like, yeah, like tell us, like you have a pool and you'll get a year's worth of, you know, when to check the gates and when to, you know, check the pH, et cetera, et cetera. So that idea was was new in the multifamily industry and it took a while uh, for us to get real penetration. But uh, it's in about 2018, 2019, I think the light started to go on and, and we started to get real traction. And today, today we have about 5,500 properties, which represents somewhere around 55,000 buildings around the country, about 2 million units that are on the platform. So uh, it's a significant, it's, it's a meaningful portion of, of the market now at this point.
2: Without question. That's such a great story, Daniel. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like perhaps you didn't have a lot of tech experience, you know, within the real estate industry. Yet you were able to outline a process and then turn it into, you know, a, a tech offer. How did that? How did that go down? How'd that happen?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a very good question, <laughs> uh, and and it's not a process that I can recommend. Right. In fact, you know, one on one hand, we like to say, look, we were bootstrapped and and it allowed us to mature the product before we wasted a bunch of money building bad, wrong product, bad product fit. And, and there are definitely examples of potential competitors of ours who did that, who raised money up front and just burned through it, building the wrong thing or selling it the wrong way. But it wasn't some act of genius and foresight. I have to freely admit it. It was partly being hobbled by the fact that we, I didn't have a technical co-founder. I'm not a coder myself. I'm a, I'm an engineer and I, you know, I think, uh, I'm a linear thinker like that. So I think it was possible for me to work with our, our third party, all offshore developers to get, to get the product built, but it didn't, it, it, that back then, at least it didn't fly with a lot of early stage seed investors who wanted to see a tech guy on the team who could. You know, bang out a new feature overnight, if if need be. And uh, in the early days, that was that was hard. So, I'm sure that that I was less than efficient sometimes. And there, there, are, I'm sure that I can think of a couple times where, you know, we went down sort of a cul-de-sac, and like this is not where we we wanted to be, and we ended up there because I wasn't developing. You know, great, you know, functional requirements or feature requirements that I learned later uh, and got better at it. But but the early days, yeah, it was it was hard uh, and a challenge and not the best way to go about things. But you know, you can't just um, you can't just walk through the neighborhood knocking on doors and say, "Do you want to be my technical co-founder?" Right? If if that person's not in your in your orbit, they're hard to find. And they're probably doing their own thing. If they're smart enough and ambitious enough to want to be involved in a startup, they probably have their own idea that they're germinating. And so, you know, and, and this is given LA where while not as vibrant a tech ecosystem as say San Francisco still has a, you know, a prominent, like there's a, there's a CEO, local CEO roundtable and CEO, uh, you know, a networking event that I would go to and, you know, we just had to make it work. And I found, uh, luckily, blessedly, I found great offshore consultants who could step in and fill an engineering lead and and an enterprise architect role. Again, not, do we get it all right? Probably not, but it was good enough to get the product put together, to deliver something of use, uh, to deliver value, to prove the concept and then, and the start selling the product. And once that happened, and once once you had people that were raving about what we could do for them, then the objections to the fact that it wasn't a technical co founder started to evaporate a little bit.
2: And that segues so nicely into my next question, Daniel. Because you know you had a product; it was ready. Um, and then, how did you candidly? How did you go about? introducing it to the market and selling it? Had you had a lot of connections within the industry already? You know, was there specific strategies that worked really well?
0: So I don't, I don't know that the multifamily industry is drastically different than many other industries, but it is definitely different than many in, it is, it is extremely insular. There was a lot of movement between companies. So a lot of, People at the at the at the enterprise level, at the enterprise investment level, there's a lot of folks that know each other, and a lot of sales have been done traditionally in this industry based on relationships. It is not if you if you if you par- parachute an enter- a super enterprise sales guy in a multifamily, it probably will fail because that approach just generally is is difficult to sell product. You. You have to come with, with knowledge of what the industry is like, knowledge of what the you know, what the people are going through on a day-to-day basis. And so initially, and and although I had been in the industry and I was with a very large firm, I wasn't, I didn't have a national presence. I wasn't going to national apartment association meetings and and I wasn't a vendor, right? So I hadn't established relationships with other owners, operators, third party managers. Um, you know, I was a third-party manager. The vendors came to me. So I didn't have a Rolodex of people to sell to. I did have a pretty decent Rolodex of vendors that had great salespeople that I'd go to. And that ended up being the real breakthrough was, was we pulled in uh, a woman named Sue Ellen McFarling, who was really our first employee who had been selling in the industry all of her life, for the most part, in some other and, and had been in some other uh, startups that had successful exits. So she'd seen that that cycle and where we had struggled to get phone calls returned and emails returned, that started to change when she arrived. And that was sort of really when the breakthrough started to happen. Um, and then, you know, the next two or three sales folks that we we hired were all from the industry, had been selling into the industry. And, uh, and that's important in this business. I don't think it's important in every business, but in this one, relationships uh, matter.
2: Yeah. Real estate really is a unique industry, isn't it? And and no doubt you have some insight on that from, you know, the CEO of a, a tech company, candidly, yet somebody who's also worked in the industry. So your company eventually did receive, you know, an investment. You'd been bootstrapping it for a while. If I may ask, what was the motivation behind that decision?
0: I think once you, I, I think it, I think it's fine. And I'm going to make the case, maybe optimal, to spend your early days lean trying to get product right, testing it with clients, seeing what they say. but once you realize you have lightning in a bottle, you have a very limited shelf life to capitalize on that and uh, and to sell the hell out of it and it takes capital to do that there's there's just there's no two ways around it and you know unless you can, this happens rarely, but unless you can generate enough, you know, free cash flow on your own, uh, just bootstrapping, you are going to have to raise money at some point if you really want to garner the kind of market share that becomes defensible. And so that really was it. The product was more or less fully baked. We definitely added. So you, so we raised. You're referring to we raised nine and a half million dollars from a private equity fund out of New York, Level Equity, happy to give them a plug. They've been great to work with. So we raised uh, that money from Level Equity in in late 2019. The product was more or less uh, mature at that point. It it had a full feature set, everything we needed to sell. So it wasn't a fun product. We just had never had any marketing ever. Uh, And the sales team, we had grown to, at that time, uh, about 4 million in revenue. We'd been 4.5 million in revenue. We had grown that with, yeah, you know, off and on, two to three salespeople. So the idea with with you know with with several regions never covered in the United States. So we raised money so that we could properly staff a sales team, with all the regions covered, add some SDRs who could handle smaller clients, and then um, and then start uh, hire a CMO and somebody to support them so that we could actually market the product. It was it was. Uh, I remember when I hired the CMO, I said I. I I just never want to hear again. How is it that we've never heard of you guys? This is amazing. Why is this the first time I'm hearing about it? So that was, that was his charges go and, and, and create some brand awareness. And so that, that's where most of that, most of that race has gone. Some to development for sure, but it's, we have been, we had been jogging. It was time to us for us to full sprint.
2: Yeah. Well, I appreciate your transparency, Daniel with the benefit of hindsight. Are you glad that you bootstrapped in the early days of the company? You know, getting the product right, not necessarily burning through cash and then receiving funding. Or, you know, what what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I I'm glad because it worked out for us. Right. <laughs> and um, and this is important to know that you know as a, as a as as a for those out there that are considering founding their own company, you know, you raise you raise too much too early and you get into that cycle, you'll find yourself diluted down to um, a de minimis ownership by the time you're, you're you're hitting 10 million in revenue. So those of us that were were early into the company probably own um, an outsized share of the company still, even though we've, now that we've raised money through a private equity firm. And, and that feels great. That feels good. It, is definitely the riskier way to go. Uh, there was a lot of risk early on. I mean, I we went we we went through the phase where we had developed the product with a with a firm that proof of proved the concept, but we needed something more reliable, more robust in order to uh, keep larger clients happy. And it was like sell the four hundred one k kind of moment, and that like literally and. That's how I funded, you know, the early phase of the product we have today. And that is painful. Like you talk about a gut check moment. Like, are you really all in? Do you really believe in what you're doing? And that's the kind of those, unless you're just, you happen to be wealthy to begin with, those are the kind of choices you're gonna be making early on. How are you gonna make payroll? How are you gonna fund development? And though all that is much more painful without raising money. But if you can get over that hump, if you can successfully create a product and start selling it and gain some market traction, prove out that you've got market fit, get testimonials from really happy clients, then you will raise money later at better valuations that will, that will ultimately make for a better exit for you um, whenever you choose to do that because you will have you will have hoarded your precious equity for as long as possible.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, that there's so much wisdom in that, Daniel. And, you know, I'm not necessarily a subject matter expert when it comes to this space, but when you started the company, could you give us a sense for the landscape that you were entering? You know, were there a lot of key competitors that, you know, um, you had to navigate as you were bootstrapping the business? What did the, the overall landscape look like?
0: Well, I think we were we were lucky, and one of the things that got me excited uh, early on, what what got some of the other early employees excited uh, early on, is that the Leonardo twenty four seven solution was really a greenfield idea. We we didn't have to eject an incumbent software platform. We just needed to change the way that that potential client kind of does business. You know, they were on. They were on pencil and paper and clipboards, maybe Excel. Maybe they were trying to do something in like Google or Smartsheets or something like that. But it was, it was easier in that respect because once they got it, if it resonated with them, then it was like, this. I, where has this been all my life? And that's a great place to be, right? That's, that's an enviable uh, kind of position to be in as for a startup. There were some massive players in the space already Uh, on the technology side, but they were really accounting platforms and they weren't paying attention at all and really still aren't, knock on microphone, uh, uh, to the operation side. Like everything, like they're really focused on the resident experience. Uh, And rightly so. I mean, that was the first thing to solve in this business. The first thing that needed to be solved with technology was how can we lease better? How can we market the properties better? And so that's where a lot of tech focused early on, we're, we're in this last mile of operations, like, okay, now that the place is leased up, now what? And, and you know, that nobody just, nobody had been paying attention to that. So it was a very greenfield kind of opportunity for us. The downside of that is it takes a lot more education. Nobody's picking up the phone to call you and say, hey, do you have a thing that will you know, help us uh, run our properties? The phone never rang. So it was, it was all, it was all outreach. It was all trying to uncover opportunities. And, you know, I think that probably still worked to our advantage because, uh, once somebody got it, then it was, uh, then it, then it was an easy to close. We didn't, we didn't then have to convince them that we were better than the next guy.
2: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, tell us more, Daniel. You know, you you hired a CMO. That was kind of a, a key, you know, a key movement, you know, toward your growth journey. And in even right now, how did you guys go about, you know, you had a solid product. How did you go about introducing it to the market and telling folks, hey, this is this is something that you needed. Perhaps you didn't know um that's what you needed. I mean, was that all about branding and, and marketing? Is that kind of the key vernacular that you used to? Broadcast that message.
0: I, I I wish I wish we had been able to focus on branding. We just didn't have the resources to do that. By by the way, that is uh, magic pixie dust in and of itself. If you have a, a marketing person who can successfully brand a product in a way that's memorable, that expresses your value proposition right. succinctly, and 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 like that's that that's worth that person's worth their weight in gold. We didn't have that person, however. Again, I think we're lucky in this industry that so much is driven by trade shows. You know, there, there, are, there are a number of magazines you can advertise to death in those magazines and talk about your product and, and it doesn't move the needle. You, you, can't, you can't advertise on TV. You can't, you know, put an ad on the radio. None of that, none of that moves the needle. But, but show up at a trade show with a, with a booth and a demo, and, you know, half of the top 50 operators in the country will probably see what you're doing. And uh, if you're, if it's, you know, reasonably easy to understand, we'll get engaged. So that was where the early, that was where most of the early traction came from. I've got to give credit once again to, to uh, Sue Ellen, who also had a Rolodex. So those two things you know, reaching out through trade shows and reaching out through um, a Rolodex that had been developed over 15 years of selling various products into the industry. I think that was a key. We're, we're there's a company we're looking at acquiring that spent a lot more than we did on tech. Pro- product is comparable. Some features they have, we don't have. We have others that they don't, but they missed that key piece of how to sell. And so as a result, they really don't really have too many clients. Even though the product looks good, solves a similar problem, but they were they were more technologists than they were salespeople. And maybe that was maybe that ended up being an advantage for us as well. Like we early on had maybe the product was a little looser in terms of its development, but we were communicating it better to those people that that came into our ecosphere. And So the personal relationship factor came into play early on in building, in building the company. I still don't feel like, I still don't feel like we have a great, well-recognized brand. I hear from the sales team that, you know, one in five, one in four people that they're talking to will say, oh yeah, I know you guys. Uh, So that's why the CMO is here to help us solve that problem. But we got the, we did the harder part first, which was get, get the sales and and get customers in the door.
2: Yeah. Well, let's talk about the future, Daniel. You know, what's, what's happening with Leonardo? What are some of the, the key things that, you know, are on your horizons, whether that be new, exciting things, whether that be obstacles you're trying to surmount, tell us about your thoughts on the future for the company.
0: Well, there's, there's, there's still additional feature sets that will I think make the product richer you know, we just launched a Slack-like interface, which we're hoping to expand to allow companies to communicate across their entire portfolio and then allow residents to communicate with them. Uh, so there's that, that feature will grow. There's, there's other like point solutions that other people are, that clients are sometimes still using with another piece of software that we want to sort of bring into the fold. We really, the goal, the goal for us is to create the other must have operating Solution. So you, you have your accounting platform often just referred to as the PMS property management system. You have your PMS system. Uh, we're the, we want to be the other must have operating system for operations and maintenance. So, so gathering together any feature set that really strengthens that offering. Is probably priority number one. Working with uh, vendors, allowing other vendors who work on site to work through the app, track what they're doing, allow them to purchase through the app. Working with, uh, doing a better job at improving asset tracking, for example. So there's a number of, of features like like that. But there's also, you know, we've been very focused on the multi, the multi-family market, the rent-to-own market. Uh, what's happening there is, or, rent, or sorry, build-to-rent market. Uh, what's happening there's very interesting, um, and I don't think it's going away. I think it's probably a sector that's only continuing to grow. And so we're looking how we can serve that sector as well. We have a number of clients that are starting to uh, buy or build or expand their single family holdings portfolio. And in operating single family, you have a lot of the same issues that we deal with on the multifamily side, and in some ways they're, exasper- they're, they're, they're exaggerated because- if you are managing apartment building you have maybe you have a hundred units but you have one manager managing all hundred units if you're managing single family buildings each each single family home is a unit and you might have one manager per building <laughs> like depending nice. on how clustered those homes are uh, you might have a bunch of different managers managing a hundred in a hundred units you may have a number of different managers so keeping them all, all doing the same thing the right way at the right time through probably even greater degrees of experience really resonates with us. So m- moving into some of those other markets is probably one of the other near term things we'll look at.
2: Yeah, no doubt. That's, that's exciting. Well, Daniel it behoove me not to plug your podcast apartment Academy, the apartment Academy podcast, uh, link to that in the description of this episode. Um, you know, I'm just curious as like, you know, podcaster to podcaster, tell us about your show and, um, you know, what have you seen it do for Leonardo yourself? Um, just, you know, tell us about that a little.
0: Well, first of all, we, you know, we, we launched it as the apartment Academy podcast, not the Leonardo 24 seven podcast, because the, we really wanted to build something that wasn't a show for the software was a legitimate show that, 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 echoed the same values we had as the, as the software company, which was deliver value to people, help them operate properties better. There are a lot of like how to make money at real estate podcasts, right? How to buy cheap. And right. There's tons of those (laughs) very few. I, I might, I definitely count them on one hand that really address operations, the operations side. So we wanted to be the podcast where if you, if you were an operator, if you were managing properties, we would bring in the best vendors to tell you about what was happening in technology, um, or or some of these are not so techy, like, you know, construction vendors, like how, how do you get great pricing on carpet? <laughs> like, so we really wanted to deliver value first of all. So that was the, one of the missions of the Apartment Academy. And to give us an opportunity to talk to other people in the industry and, you know, by osmosis, they would learn about Leonardo 24 seven because we're connected but we, would, we, we wanted to reinforce that we, I, are experts in, um, in property operations, and that's what we do, it's what we think about. And this isn't just a piece of software that we're bringing to the table, we're bringing expertise and a true partnership. And the Apartment Academy is an, is, is an expression of that intent to deliver value and teach people something that maybe they didn't know. And it's been, it's been a great experience. This is fun, right? This is, this is, it's great hearing other people's perspectives uh, on what they're doing. You know, you're, you're, you're getting this these tiny slices of different technologies across a bunch of different industries. Uh, I, I, you know, that must be fascinating. So it's been, it's been a great experience. Uh, I think it's a great way to build a brand, a personal brand also and it, the only downside is it is a bit of a resource hog, right? Like getting these, you, you do a, a lot of these. I think when you reached out to me, I said, I, I looked at your, your counter. I'm like, I don't know how you get all these things scheduled. <laughs> Cause that's kind of the hardest part. And then you have to get them edited and, you know, published and, and that's non-trivial. Um, so if you're going to consider this, just, just hopefully you have some help. I do. Awesome.
2: Awesome. Well, Daniel Cunningham, it's been such a pleasure having you on the podcast links to uh, Leonardo 24 seven in the description of this episode, the apartment Academy podcast and more, but thank you so much for coming on leaders of B2B.
1: Yes. Awesome. Thank you. Great work. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leaders of B2B.com.